Hi, this is Mike Wang. I want to take the opportunity to tell you about the AANS meeting that's coming up in Philadelphia. I'm super excited to share with you the brand new venue, and I've been honored to be chosen by Reg Haid as a scientific program chair for our meeting this year in 2022. Based on responses to surveys with our membership over the last several years, we've decided to change completely the meeting format. Now, it just so happens that it coincided with the ending of the COVID pandemic, but we have shifted the entire meeting to the weekend. What that means is instead of the typical meeting format where you'd come in on Saturday and Sunday for practical courses with an opening reception on Sunday night, then the meeting on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, which was a very long meeting, if you will. We recognize that surgeons are getting busier and busier and travel budgets are getting tighter and tighter. So this meeting format will start on Friday and expand through Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday. There are obviously some offerings on Thursday like the Haros and Sontag Symposia, which are not to be missed. But the mainline elements of the meeting when you register are Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday. And what we've done to make this more efficient for you is we've essentially tailored the meeting so if you're more of a generalist, more of that content's on the front end of the meeting on Friday and Saturday. And more of the concentrated subspecialty content is on Sunday and Monday. So let me walk you through it. For example, on Friday, we have a number of ticketed events like practical courses. There's the international symposium and there's the APP content. In other words, if you're a nurse practitioner or PA, you're going to find a little bit more value on that Friday and maybe Saturday. We've eliminated one whole day of plenary session. This, again, is in response to our membership. So Saturday and Sunday are the plenary days. What that means is the big hall is open on Saturday and Sunday morning to hear our esteemed speakers in one large room and one large gathering. The afternoons of Saturday and Sunday will be focused on the sections. So in other words, we'll break out into our rooms to do abstracts and more concentrated subspecialty content with the sections, for example, spine, functional, tumor, vascular. Then on Monday, we've started a brand new thing called Communities, and this is crafted a special way. We've made it so that it ends a little bit earlier at 4, 4.30, so most people can get home that evening on Monday night so they don't miss Tuesday. And the Communities are 14 rooms that are designed to be smaller, more cozy, more conversation, more debate, and we want industry in the room. It is CME offered, but the industry is welcome to be there as well to listen to what thought leaders in the different fields can say about what they're doing, the cutting edge issues, the existential crises, right? What is really on the minds of the super subspecialist? And these community offerings are part of your regular registration. So I know it's a little confusing, but when you register for the meeting, it seems like you have to check a community, check a box, and that usually implies you have an additional charge, and that is not the case at all here. Basically, the 14 communities will be run concurrently, and you're welcome to walk from room to room. If, for example, you want to check out motion preservation in spine and then go over and see cervical thoracic deformity, then you can do that. And it's going to be very interactive. Feel free to to engage, raise your hand, get up to the microphone and speak because we want to hear from neurosurgeons everywhere. Lunch on Monday will be offered at the famous Reading Terminal. You'll be given lunch tickets from our industry representatives and you'll be able to get a quick lunch and grab an amazing Philly cheesesteak or some ramen noodles and then come back to the meeting. So again, I want to welcome you to Philadelphia in 2022. I hope you can make it. We're all eager to see each other in person again. We haven't had such a large meeting since the beginning of the pandemic. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast.
Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. As we continue our regular episodes, I have to tell you I'm absolutely delighted to be joined in person today by Kim Manny. Kim uh, is the CEO of our hospital. Um, JP could not be here. He's on call at Rush in Chicago. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Now, you're, you've now been CEO for about two years, is that yes. right? Okay, and tell us a little bit about your path. Uh, I, w- I don't want to say upward, but up the, the ladder of leadership here at University of Miami because it's so interesting to me. So I was hired originally here uh, as soon as the university bought the hospital in 2007 to get the heart vascular stroke program off the ground. My whole background is in heart vascular stroke and I was a cardiovascular invasive specialist and had worked in heart vascular stroke for uh, probably 30 plus years by the time I made it here. But so we came here in the same year, 2007, to join UM. Correct. Okay, so what does that mean, a, a heart vascular specialist or cardiovascular specialist? So it's all cardiac cath lab related and, and then all the multi-specialties that go into a cath lab. We were a multidisciplinary lab uh, back in the day before that really became in vogue. So we had neurointervention, we had uh, interventional radiology, we had all of the facets of cardiology from EP to CTO to all of the structural heart things already in place in the cath labs at that time. And a world-renowned cardiologist that was here at the time, Dr. Bill O'Neill, who worked in Detroit, um, recruited me here to get this first service line off the ground. And the first service line off the ground here was heart vascular stroke at that time, along with sports medicine and then neurosurgery. Oh, so you came in uh, under Pascal Goldschmidt when he was dean, right? Yes. When they were growing the cardiology group yes. here and all that. Okay, yes. great. So you were here uh, in that role for a period of time, and then tell me what happened after that. So over the course of time, you know, when you have uh, staff come and go and a lot of gaps, I filled in a lot of different holes here for a whole host of different reasons of shortages. I would get broken departments, get them fixed up, get the right leader hired, get them back on track. I ran the OR for a few times few interims there while we were waiting to get our current leader, Clemencia Silk, Um, and I'd done a lot with operations, and because I started out in heart vascular stroke, and that was the first service line, I had incidentally done all the construction here. So then, whether it was a construction project in my service line or not, I started doing all the construction projects for everybody as well. And so in 2013, um, we had a change in leadership at the CEO level, and my COO was promoted to CEO on an interim level, and he'd asked me to take over as COO on it. That was David. David Zambrano. Okay. And so I did that for a year and then was made the permanent in 2014. In 2019, um, right prior to the pandemic, I got a call from Dr. Parekh that said, on a Friday, that said, by the way, on Monday, we need you to take over as the CEO because we're making some changes. We need you to lead this through the pandemic. And so I took over as a CEO at the beginning of the pandemic. Wow, okay, so now I do want to get into that for the bulk of our, our, our recording today, but tell me, you have a PhD, so you have a doctorate, right? So tell me about your PhD. So I wanted to do, and I was gonna take a completely different career path and go into alternative medicine, and I really wanted to focus that with cancer. And so I started along that path and finished that journey, and then in 2000, I actually got out of the hospital business altogether and was gonna just do that line of business and an old boss sucked me back into a hospital setting, and once I got sucked back into another cardiac program, I just stayed in. And everybody says, well, you don't use your your degree, but actually you do, because there's so much psychology around patient care, and you know the whole part of wellness, from allopathic to the alternative spiritual side of medicine, right? They have to go together. There's no one right answer. Yeah, I was so, gonna say, it's almost like you do the opposite of that, yeah. but actually you're actually doing that. Yes, you're actually doing that. Yeah. So it really pulls full circle all of your interaction with the patient, but it also, also pulls full circle everything around your staff as well. 
right? Because there's a whole host of reasons why people perform or don't perform, why they perform better some days and not other days. And so you really kind of get your arms wrapped around the global person and the global staff member, the global patient, the global physician, if you will, when you're dealing with them on a day-to-day basis, right? Yeah. And so um, it's actually helped me more, I think, and helped me be a more effective leader by having that side of my um, curriculum than if I had just gone off and done one thing or just gone off and done the other thing. I think it's made me a more effective leader. Right, right, right. Now, I do want to talk about everything that's happened the past two years, but I do want to issue a little bit of a disclaimer because not everybody listening to us is in America or knows about what we do, and they may just follow sort of mainstream media. And I'll just say as a personal uh, element, in January of 2020, which was the beginning of the pandemic, when Taiwan closed, I predicted, and I was at national meetings, I said, I think a million people are going to die in America before this is over. And I said that in the context of having worked at CDC for years and trained in public health and studied microbiology at Stanford. And I knew that we were headed to this at some point. But with that in mind and understanding the gravity of the pandemic, I'm going to make kind of a semi-bold claim, and I challenge anybody to email me if, if I'm incorrect about this, that I did my thousandth surgery during pandemic times last week uh, in spine. And um, that's only possible because of what you and your staff have done, which is we are probably one of the only university hospitals that has essentially remained open continuously through all this. Yeah. That's correct, right? Yes. And I know, very, I know a lot of people and everybody told me, yeah, we, we took three months off or three weeks off or two months off and they shut down elective surgery. Now, I'm not saying we were just like, crazy doing whatever we wanted. We had a protocol in place. And I'll also add that of those thousand patients, I don't know of a single case, and my patients can correct me if I'm wrong, of either COVID transmission or COVID complications from the surgery from the hospital. I'm not saying nobody died, you know, seven months after surgery from something else. I'm just saying from coming to this intervention here at UM that they had that problem. And people still criticize us today because they're like, well, how come you don't allow visitors yet? I'm double vaxxed or triple vaxxed. We're like, wait a minute, you're not getting this because I've seen all our area hospitals around us close and open, close and open, close and open, right? So with that sort of as the subcontext, I want to ask you about your experience, and we can take this however you want, during these last two years of your life. Yeah. So... For us, um, my chief medical officer, Tanera Ferreira, and I work very closely together. We're like peas and carrots all day long. And we sat um, having coffee one morning looking at the news in in December of 2019. Mm -hmm. And we saw this marching across Mm -hmm. um, the continent. And I said to her, we need to start planning this. This is in Europe at the time, right? Yeah, right. We need to start planning this immediately because this is just a matter of weeks to months before this is here. So we let everybody go home and do their Christmas thing, and everybody came back all refreshed, right? In January, we hit the ground running with creating different teams, uh, different people, how we were going to separate the hospital out, what we were going to do, and how we were going to house the number of patients that we thought we were going to have. And initially, the intel we got was that we were going to have thousands of patients, and they would be laying in our hallways, they would be laying in our conference rooms and everything. Like New York City. Correct. So we quickly quickly realized that we needed to get our own, somehow get our arms around our own artificial intelligence about our own geographic area. So she created a team that set out to do that. We decided that we would follow kind of the Israeli model for a care plan, and we separated the hospital and decided to run it immediately as two hospitals. So we had COVID at the top, and we had all of the rest of the med surge at the bottom. So the first five floors of the hospital were all COVID, and the lower floors then were all med surge and everything else. And you quickly did construction. I remember that. You had construction people everywhere, right? Yeah, we did. We had construction people everywhere. 
because we have a fresh air intake, we made those um, all those units negative pressure <clears throat> so that we didn't have any cross-contamination. We put up double doors. We created barriers for dining and doffing. We created teams that only did and monitored don and doff. Because in the beginning, remember, we didn't know if this was going to be like Ebola-type contagious or what it was. So we had to make sure that we had spotters and people that were watching everybody doing everything correctly with a script, how you put it on, how you take it off, the whole nine yards. Now, I want to stop you there because I think it's important to have context. We've come through so much that a lot of people are like, duh. But I will go back to that time, and I remember we were doing our pandemic uh, recordings. We had a mini-series about COVID. We recorded people in Taiwan, mm -hmm. recorded people in Switzerland. And I remember being on some, some webinars with UC San Francisco. And uh, I was on with, I think, Dean Chow, and he was showing pictures of, at UCSF, they would have an entryway and they'd have three people like to triage. They weren't wearing masks. There was no protection, but they would take the temperature. And I was like, wait a minute, you guys, and, and I have great deference to UCSF, by the way. I was like, you guys don't even wear masks? Now, meanwhile, in the news later, we get pilloried for like the crazy Florida people, right? Yeah. But, I, but when you think back to what kind of, uh, leadership it took to do what you and Tanera and others and Carlos did to say we're going to take resources now and get ready before the tragedy hits. Correct. I mean that was how did you even know to think of that? Well we had to come up with something to keep the hospital moving and to try to create as little business interruption as possible because we have such a huge cancer footprint those patients can't wait for weeks to months to get their surgeries or to get their care mm -hmm. on top of all the other luminary service lines that are people are just critically, critically ill. So we knew we had to do something immediately. And so that was what we felt was the best and most safest way to operate and to run it. We separated the emergency department. We put all the COVID outside in air conditioned tents mm -hmm. um, and we call it glamping um, <laughs> in air conditioned tents. And we had that whole set up so that if you work COVID or if you worked in those areas, you stayed in those areas and we didn't float and, and keep moving people around. For personnel? For personnel. Okay. We kept continuity of care. So if you got brought into a certain area, you stayed in that certain area for that period of time because we didn't want to have cross-contamination. So we did that immediately. And then we got the PPE, the ventilators, everything that we knew we were going to need, mm -hmm. uh, meeting after meeting after meeting all day long about all the possibilities of what equipment in the worst-case scenarios we would need that we needed to have here and ready to go, which we did. So six days in, we start to see it roll in, right? And so we realized at that point, we also needed to look at our own geographic area and see what the transmission rates were and, and what the contagion levels were. And when we got six days in and I had one employee get admitted that had a ton of comorbidities with COVID, which we didn't know he had COVID coming in, mm -hmm. was found out afterward when they uh, realized he was going downhill quickly, did an MRI and saw the COVID. Because testing wasn't as it is wasn't now. Wasn't in vogue at that yeah. point for pre-testing. Right. And then I had two employees that cared for him that also got it from him. We immediately, like five to six days in, put everybody in masks out of the gate, no matter what. They had the full PPE mm -hmm. on masks, goggles, the whole nine yards. And then, of course, they had the full PPE if they worked the COVID units. Um, and then we realized we needed to start testing every single admission that came through the door to see if they were COVID positive or not out of the gate. So everybody in the emergency room, um, whether you were coming in for COVID or COVID symptoms, or you were coming in for some other cancer admission or any other admission, before you got admitted to the floor, you were tested for COVID before you went. And then once we determined if you were negative or positive, that determined the floor bed that you were gonna get. And so we started that right out of the gate. And then we also started doing that right out of the gate for this, the ORs and the surgeries and figuring out how many days of incubation we needed and then testing for those surgical cases in the UPAC scenario so that we knew coming in how many of those patients were gonna be COVID positive or not. 
um, for the surgeries. And then we also created a COVID surgical OR. So if we had an emergency surgery that was COVID positive, we could also take care of those patients. And then we had a team that we developed immediately that transported those patients, right? Because the pathway up and the pathway back had to be cleared out. Um, we couldn't have anybody around it because of the whole contagion level we weren't you know, super sure about in the beginning, so we took extreme precaution. And then you have to have housekeeping teams that go clean the path up and clean the path back. And this is super difficult because uh, at the time there was a lot of uncertainty and there still is a lot of fear, yes. but there was a lot of fear. How did you, I mean, you must have so many stories of dealing with HR personnel, yeah. psychological breakdowns, yeah. right? So we moved HR to this building because HR is in an offsite location. We uh -huh. brought HR right to this building. And so they were our partners on the floor to help with facts so that we tried to combat all of the fears and allay the fear with facts. Uh -huh. We didn't speculate, we didn't get what we got off CNN, and we tried to follow the science right. and follow it with fact-based science when we were dealing with staff and communicating to staff and physicians. Right. And so HR was instrumental in helping us with that as well, and they were boots on the ground every single day working with us, as well as the patient experience teams um, my uh, executive leadership team, we huddle every day. And so those facts were constantly being given out. And as the science changed, our facts changed. Right, right? and all politics are local, right? So you were following yeah. also the local phenomenon, not just yes. what happened in Nebraska, yes, right? Exactly. Yeah. So let me ask you about, so we're on wave six or seven We're now? on wave six. Okay, wave six, yeah. which is the last Omicron wave, and then who knows what's coming next, right? Yes. So people look back at this, and it's very easy. And by the way, that was the earlier, I don't want to say it's deadlier, but there was certainly higher mortality rates at the time, yeah. right? Whether it's due to immunity, vaccines, yeah. we don't know, or the virus itself. Um, now we're in this wave six. Now everybody's kind of reopened. You see the, the claim that, you know, California is even saying you don't have to mask indoors. Things are changing now, right? But of course, the question people have, the smart people, is like, what about next time, right? The, the intelligent people are saying, okay, well, this is whatever it is, but we are, what about the next, let, let's say let's say this is uh, just a, a, a practice run mm -hmm. for something deadlier. Mm -hmm. And you saw Ebola, that was a time yeah. I remember. Um, and that was more of a scare because it's so lethal, but it never really spread, right? Right. What would you say if you were the head of all the hospital CEOs in America, that you say, okay, well, look, now that things are kind of getting better, there's more PPE, we have a normalization, what is the message you give to those people today? Well, I think the message is always to be proactive and strategic. And the fact that, you know, we were fortunate that our own artificial intelligence team that we created looked at multiple factors, right? They looked at the science that came from the CDC and the federal government. Mm -hmm. We looked at other people's experience. We looked at wastewater here in the state of Florida and the, the uh, transmission rates and all of those things. All of those things go into our own artificial intelligence. And we actually navigated the hospital based on that, and I could tell when the approximate peaks and valleys we're going to hit. Mm -hmm. um, I will never have a time in my life where I don't have enough PPE here for the amount of staff and physicians that I have working. Yeah, we never had a shortage like that, no, right? No, we never had a shortage. I will never have a time when uh, we are not proactively looking at our own artificial intelligence to see if there's going to be any more spikes or bumps along the way because we can kind of predict it about... We can predict it pretty accurately for in two-week increments for sure, but we have been pretty accurate at a month to a month and a half out, which also helps us in our preparation. Um, I will always have proactive teams for discharge. I will always have proactive teams for admission. 
I, I will never be without some of those teams. Um, it's not a hyperbolic statement to say that. I was reading in the, in, in, in the Wall Street Journal about the excess deaths. Now they're not talking about COVID deaths, but just the gross mortality statistics, meaning that uh, a, a, a offshoot of COVID is someone didn't get cancer screening, so then they died of cancer. Right. Is that a COVID death? I mean, obviously not an infection, but yeah. that's the excess mortality. And I want to say that, you know, by you and Tanira and the group here, and, and there are many others, and all, of course, all the ground level troops, all the, all the foot soldiers, that it probably resulted in saving hundreds or thousands of lives by being able to stay open, right? right. Absolutely. People forget about this. Absolutely. That people are getting cancer care. Yeah. I mean, people from the, and I don't want to name the hospitals, these giant hospitals around us that just shut down, like we were absorbing their, their patients, right? right? In the beginning, we were all forced to shut down in the state of Florida, right? The first wave, mm -hmm. uh, they shut everybody down from approximately, I think, April 1st through like May 4th. I mean, it could have been, yeah, I think it was like around April 1st through May 4th. Once May 4th was passed and they said we could start opening back up again, but mm -hmm. even during that period, we were still open to urgent and emergent surgeries, yeah. which we ended up still doing about 80% of our surgical volume. Right, I remember that. that. I was still doing surgery then, yeah. Because we still have that level of urgent and emergent cases. Yeah, right? we had to be pickier, right? Exactly. We had to prioritize. So that's why we put in so many extra measures to make sure that we knew what we were dealing with with our patients right up front so there were no surprises day of surgery and that we could mitigate every possible thing proactively that we could to make sure that that surgical patient got in on time on their day in their slot mm -hmm. and got their surgical case done and then was able to get to a bed, have their care, and then be discharged appropriately. So there's a lot of dancing in and around of different sub-teams that we created to make sure that all those key elements happen. So there's so many things we could talk about because a hospital is almost like a city, right? I mean, you're running like you're a mayor of this hospital, right? And so one of the things I wanted to touch on, because it was in the Wall Street Journal this morning, was this issue that we've seen uh, locally and, and, and nationally about the nursing shortage and the nursing salaries, oh, right? Yeah. And the Wall Street Journal reported uh, today that the average nursing salary increased, it doubled, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. And that means some people went up triple, and then there's reports, obviously, like in Alaska, they're paying $5,000 a week for nurses yeah. to travel, right? And, yeah. and there's a lot of reasons why this is happening, yeah. right? How, how, like, you have to manage not just the operations, but the finances, too. Correct. How do you deal with that in a hospital right. level? Well, you know, this hospital has been on a huge push to improve our quality of care, to improve our rankings, to improve our business data. Everything around the care model, we've been in a huge push to, to raise up and to really be that global uh, best practice because we're the only academic medical center in South Florida. So prior to the pandemic, we had changed our nurse to patient ratios to get in line with what we wanted to do with this care model in a non pandemic state because at the time mm -hmm. when we were planning this there was no pandemic and so we created our nurse to patient ratios either one to four on regular med surge one to three in step downs in some PCUs one to two in some of the PCU step downs depending on the acuity of the patient and then one to one or one to two in the ICUs um, when the pandemic hit and nurses could go and flee to these agencies to make these exorbitant salaries we lost a good portion as did all hospitals across the country to these agencies because these nurses have an opportunity to make money that they've never been able to make in their lives, pay off their student loans, pay off their debt, all of these different things. So I still needed to staff the hospital to maintain those nurse to patient ratios because we were committed to that. So we actually had to bring agency staff into the level of those nurse to patient ratios. Um, and we did, and we made a commitment as an institution to pay those rates. We also did some specialty salaries um, and specialty overtime rates 
so that when our own nurses picked up extra shifts that they basically got paid at an agency rate to pick mm, up that extra shift. But the thing is, then you also don't want to over incentivize that either because it's not healthy to have those nurses working six and seven, 12 hour days in a row just because money is there, right? right then right. they're burned out, then mistakes happen at the bedside. So we tried to um, incentivize uh, at least one extra shift. If we could get them to pick up one extra shift at this accelerated rate, um, that's what we did. And then we did have to use agency labor, and we're still using agency labor today. Um, and it is, it's extremely expensive. However, um, we've been able to keep the hospital going. We have really not missed a beat. We've taken care of all the med surgeons come through our emergency room door, all the surgical patients that have been scheduled for us. And yes, there's a cost to providing that level of care, but we did it, and we were still able to keep it somehow financially viable in order to be able to make it happen. Yeah, it's not right? easy. I mean, you it's and I have spoken about this, that basically, you know, even though this is an unsustainable trend, clearly nurses, you know, who've worked very hard through all this deserve to, yeah. you know, it's, it's a once in a lifetime that they yeah. can, as you say, maybe pay off student loans Absolutely. and whatnot. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, well, Kim, it's fantastic in terms of what you've been able to do. I, you know, my hat's off to you. It's rare that... I don't want to call you administration, but you are, uh, that, uh, that doctors uh, are sort of uh, <laughs> complimentary of their hospital administration, right? You hear mostly complaints. But I have to say that you guys uh, and your team, Kathy Rosenberg, Tenero, yourself, Carlos, you've done an amazing job here. I think it's a model. I think it's a footprint. It almost should be put in, memorialized in a manual for future, uh, for future use because I don't think this will be the last pandemic. Actually, there's no way it would be the last one. Um, is there any message you want to give to young people out there who are thinking maybe about a career in administration? Because you didn't really plan, you didn't chart this out, right? No. You, you sort of fell into no, I was it, right? Clinical. Yeah, I yeah. really wanted to be clinical. I think that uh, I am blessed in that my entire management leadership team is 100% clinical. They were 100% clinical first before they got into these roles. And I think it's incredibly imperative because you need to know how each side of the coin lays, right? And also when there's gaps, we can all go and fill in when we need to. Mm -hmm. So 100% every single person here was boots to ground and has been during this entire pandemic. And it's not ever a one-man show, right? If Kim Manny wasn't here, I still have all of these people that would do just an absolute amazing job at, at facilitating and running this hospital because they were all such a huge and integral part of it, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I think that that is the biggest thing is that if you wanna take an administrative role, it's a fantastic thing to do at a certain level in your career, but to get that clinical expertise, boots on the ground first, so that you understand what the day in the life of your staff is really truly like, versus you being offset in an office somewhere making decisions where you don't know how that decision really plays out at the front line. I think it's imperative. I think it was an integral part. I think it's what made Tanera so successful in dealing with her different physician teams because we had to have several different physician teams that were taking care of COVID as well as the ICU and the intensivists, the hospitalists, all of these different groups. Um, and the fact that she's an intensivist and she's quadruple boarded and she knows all of these things, she knows what that life is like. She also worked the COVID units and, mm -hmm. and did her shifts, uh, worked the intensive cares and did her shifts. Um, and I think it just made it all the more real that we were lined up shoulder to shoulder. And, that, and that's not to say that we didn't have our hiccups. There's no hospital that's Disney World, right? We all have our hiccups. But we're in it there with them side by side and taking that intel and trying to make decisions in real time, 
right? And and trying to make those changes and, and make those things to help make their life better, easier on the job as much as we possibly can, given just extraordinary circumstances that everyone has worked through. And I will even say that even the agency staff that we've had, I tell you, the majority of them, I'd say 95% of them have been absolutely remarkable. Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of the hospitals lost the cream of the crop nursing staff that they had to go to agencies. Right. So you really got a, quite a high caliber, high highly qualified agency nurse uh, coming into work and it could have also been an OR tech, a respiratory therapist. I mean there were a lot of different people that went into agency work, emergency department staff, all of that. Uh, it was more the norm than not and that was another reason why we were able to keep our quality scores up having that much agency working in the hospital as well as our mortality rates down. Um, I think we had the lowest mortality rate uh, in the state during this whole thing, and so it speaks to the care model and the design that the physicians had, and working together with all of our doctors across all company lines, all service lines, whether they were surgeons, hospitalists, it was literally absolutely 100% a team effort. Well, Kim, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts. Uh, they're inspirational. Thank you for coming on to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. Uh, we hope to have you back again. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.